What's up, everyone? This is Trey Van Camp, and you are listening to the Ministry Podcast. Uh, we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 5, and so go ahead and open up to that now. Last week, we kind of looked at the Beatitudes, and we realized maybe we've been kind of misinterpreting this passage. It's not about be this in order for God to love you. It's not these lists of instructions for the steadfast. In fact, it was actually an invitation to the outcast. So saying, even you, you are invited into the kingdom of God. And that brings us such good news because an understanding of the gospel is we aren't the elite. We aren't the incredible. Honestly, because of our sin and our depravity, we are lowly. We don't deserve heaven, but that's the good news. Jesus says, I have come to where even you can be a part of the kingdom. So last week is about hope that we can have a relationship with God. This week is about purpose because of our relationship now to the world. So now that we know, oh, we are in the kingdom of God, we believe in him, now we need to see what is our role here on earth. Uh, Verse 13, it says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste... How can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all those who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven." Okay, so I'm excited about this passage. There's two things we're going to look at in order to fully understand this. Number one, we need to see what is Jesus implying about culture. Because if we could read this real quick, we just think, okay, we need to be salt and light, and yes, we're going to do great. But Jesus is actually insinuating something about our society. And I love that even though Jesus said this 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, this still has context for society today. These words that Jesus is saying are timeless, and it doesn't matter what society you're in. He is referencing two things. Another thing, though, that we're going to see is Jesus is saying something positive about us. So what are the negative things, though, about the culture? When we look at this, we can't just look at this as like, hey, go share the gospel. It's much deeper than that. In fact, I think it helps us share the gospel even more. Jesus is saying by we need to be salt and we need to be light means our society always goes towards decay and always goes towards darkness. You need salt to prevent decay and you need light to get out of the dark, meaning our society is in that situation. I think we could all agree to that um, as Christians. But I really want us to also see in this passage, we are the only hope for the world. How cool is that? We are the only hope for society. Now, I kind of want to do a brief history lesson. The last few weeks, I've been reading as many books as I can, just talking about kind of where we're at as a culture. And there's this really good book called How to Not Be Secular um, by James K.A. Smith. He is actually, it's just 150 pages, and it actually summarizes a 1,500-page book by Charles Taylor. And it was really describing secularism and where we're at today. And, And here's what it is. We're in a fascinating time in world history because... Before Christ came, everyone worshiped gods, like everyone. Israel was unique, if you read the Old Testament, because they, from right away, believed in one God. 
But everyone, right, they've, like even the Israelites, they would try to worship um, golden calves. Everything they did was to worship. People worshiped and they loved worshiping idols. When Jesus came, monotheism spread rapidly. Did you know this? Christians in the early, uh, like first, second century were actually called atheists because they could not imagine a religion that only worships one God. It was so, minute, so small, you might as well be atheists. I find that pretty fascinating. So monotheism spread, Christianity, other religions spread. Even in the um, 6th century, you have the Islamic faith, which is also monotheistic. You still have everybody essentially is worshiping. But something interesting happened. For the first time in history, during the Reformation period in the 1500s and following, it actually introduced a time when now people were starting to get convinced that there is no God. I imagine we all have friends, family, neighbors that don't believe in God at all. What's fascinating is 500 years ago, and every time before that, everyone assumed, of course, there is a God. The question is, what God do you serve? But now we're in an interesting era where we think, yeah, there is no God at all. Now, the Reformation actually probably set this in motion. So the Reformation, if you guys remember it, like Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses, what he essentially was saying in a bunch of that was, look, guys, you don't need a priest to access God. Like, God is here. God is everywhere. And that is true. Like, you look at Psalm 19 and how the trees are worshiping God. God is everywhere in all creation. And and the Reformation was preaching that. But the problem with that is some people then took it too far in thinking, well, it started with, yeah, that's why I don't need church at all because God is everywhere. That eventually led to think, well, if I don't need to go to church, God is everywhere. Then they thought, well, what we have in the 1700s is deism really came into play where, yeah, God created this, but we can do what we want. Like, yes, I understand that God is creator, but I don't have to go to him. In fact, deism believed that God created everything in motion and then kind of wash his hands. It's really sad reality, but a lot of our founding fathers were actually deists. I know we try to kind of paint a different picture than that, but like Thomas Jefferson, um, when you're a deist, you believe God set everything in motion, then he's his hands off. So in fact, his Bible, anytime there's a miracle by Jesus, he, he marked that out. And, and so it actually, I know this isn't a history class, but it's fascinating. If you look at culture, we have slowly but surely gotten to the point where God is everywhere. Wait a minute. God doesn't have to just be at the church. Maybe God can be, but then, oh, wait a minute. Maybe God's not involved. To now we're at the point where it's like, yeah, there is no God. And we have to understand our cultural moment and understand how to help society and how to honestly share the gospel to be a salt and light to the world. Here's the stance of secularism. Point number one. Here's, here's who we're dealing with, okay? This is what secularism believes. We are disenchanted beings that can shape our own future. I called Caleb this week. I said, okay, um, does this make sense? He goes, you need to explain disenchanted. I was like, okay. So um, I think that's a good word. So disenchanted literally means like, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in anything a miracle, right? If anything crazy happens, like if you read about the Old Testament, Jesus, I mean, Moses parting the waters, they're like, okay, there has to be a scientific reason. If this was true, maybe the east wind, right? Like we're trying to explain away absolutely everything. We're disenchanted. There's never a miracle. If somebody gets healed, no, it must be some sort of chemicals in their brain finally put it in the right spot. We never think that something, maybe guys, like miracles still happen today. Do you believe that? Amen? But we are so in a culture of disenchantment where you are now said that you are stupid if you believe in a miracle. 
You think, oh, he doesn't understand science and all that kind of stuff. And shape the future, we are in a society where we believe we can do what we want and we can achieve whatever we want. Now, I don't say this to be like this negative Nelly about the world. What I love about what Jesus is saying here is, hey, you're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. So in other words, we're not coming together and saying, yes, this, this world is decaying. This world is dark. Forget them. They, that's the exact opposite sentiment of we have here. Jesus is saying, yes, our society is dark and decaying and deteriorating and crumbling from within. But I'm saying that so you know how important your role is in society and how important it is that you take my practices and put them into society and make this place a better place. This passage gives us no opportunity to complain about the world and leave it as it is. This passage tells us we are the only solution. Sound good? So what do we do? How do we do this? How can we be salt and light to a disenchanted world that can shape their own future? Well, Matthew 5.13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty again? Now, Some people say, well, salt cannot lose its taste. The kind of salt, the way they had it refined back in the first century, anytime salt would touch the earth, the salt would be done, would no longer work. So everybody knew, and by the way, they didn't have refrigerators back then, okay? And so um, can you imagine living in Arizona without AC and refrigerator? But anyway, so in Israel, in this ancient Near East time, you had meat and you wanted to keep the meat. The only way to keep the meat was to pour salt on it. We use it more as a seasoning today, which is true, but for them, the primary reason was to preserve the meat. And they knew they had to keep very careful for the salt because the moment it touched the dirt, it completely lost its saltiness. I think there's a great picture there that Jesus is trying to share with us. It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So there's only one way that we can lose saltiness is what it's saying. So if the salt cannot touch the earth, cannot be in the earth and of the earth, the message he's saying to us is we need to be in the world, but not of the world. We say this all the time. and I think it's really helpful. Listen, we as Christians are more effective in our mission when we stay true to our distinction. Don't you wish Jesus said, hey, we are the sugar of the earth? Wouldn't that be so great? Have you ever tried to put sugar on meat? That's a great, maybe that's a brilliant thing. I'm like, the more I'm thinking about them, like maybe, wow, this is great stuff here. But anyways, we so badly want to be the sugar of the earth. Oh, it's okay, honey. Have you ever done that when you like, you go to Olive Garden, they have those things and you're like, you drop and you say, hey babe, you dropped your name tag. It says sugar on it. It's real cute, guys. You should try it. Um, Oh, man, it gets her every time. No, just kidding. Okay, so we need to see, what does this mean for us? Okay, so I was thinking through a whole week, like, God, what does this mean? Well, first of all, salt means it's different. It preserves, but also salt stings. I've been to the Dead Sea, and they said, you can go into the Dead Sea. It's the coolest thing. You just float. Like, you could do, like, I know this is weird, but to me, I thought it was fascinating. I can do, like, any type of shape, and I still floated. <laughs> like, I was like, pencil, and then I was still, like, bobbing. It was just incredible. But they said, if you have a cut, do not go in, because you will be screaming, you know, because you know, it would just hurt so bad. What salt does, but they say, stay in the Dead Sea for 30 minutes, and it's great for your skin, but get out, because it can really start to mess you up. But there's something very soothing about it. But again, salt, it kind of stings. 
So we have to figure out as Christians, how are we supposed to be in the world, not of the world? We're not supposed to be sugar. We're still supposed to be loving. That's why we see Jesus talk about a light. What does this mean for us as Christians? How can we make a difference in society today? How can we be the salt of the earth? Point number two, okay? This is how I believe in our cultural moment, this is the greatest way we can be salt. And honestly, I wish this was the only point of the day. This is what I want you to remember the most. That's probably a really bad way to set up a sermon because you're not going to listen to the next point, but this is good stuff. Our loudest desires must be killed so that our deepest desires may be fulfilled. I told Tyler, he asked me, how many points do you have today? I said, three points in a poem. I said, just kidding, I don't have a poem. And Tyler said, well, if you put all three points together, it's a poem. Like, that's true. Because um, all of them rhyme, and that's just what I do with my life. Look, let's bring it back to what's important here. That was my loudest desire that I was following there. Our loudest desires must be killed so that our deepest desires may be fulfilled. What's fascinating about the Christian life is we realize just because I really want something doesn't mean it's actually what I truly want and need. This is critical. There are so many social issues today, and we just say, oh, if that's what you want, go do it. But no, that is actually not what God has called us to at all. Our world desperately needs this message, and here's what it is. I know a lot of people are asking, what is the difference between loudest desire and deepest desire? I think it really goes down to our definition of freedom. Now, whenever you look in the Bible and it talks about freedom, for Christ has given us freedom, we have to recognize what that word freedom means. Now, when we read freedom in our culture today, it means something dramatically different. The biblical freedom means no longer being enslaved to the force of the flesh. So to us, the loudest desire is the flesh, but our deepest desire is our soul. So as Christians, there are certain things we don't do with our body because, not, because we know there's actually something more satisfying and deeper, and we know sacrificing and denying our flesh actually brings about a more satisfying and hope-filled life. Amen? But this is a very salty message to bring today because we have redefined freedom in our society. What is today's freedom? So biblical freedom is no longer being enslaved to the force of the flesh. Today's freedom is no longer being enslaved to forces outside of the flesh. This is real deep. I want you to get this, okay? And here, we do a disservice as Christians. When we say, do whatever you want, God must have created you that way, whatever. And I know you're thinking, oh, this is all across the spectrum on all the things that we engage in, Okay? We must go back to this salty message. <laughs> um, Gen Z, you know, like salty, you know. Okay, anyways, um, the rest of you guys, just forget it. Um, we're, this message today, I, if, if this was all Gen Z, the message, the title would be Salty and Liddy, but it's not. So, um, nope, three laughs. I'm really struggling today. Now, our loudest desires must be killed so that our deepest desires may be fulfilled. And I didn't think I was to talk about it, but I'm going to talk about it. Should I? Yeah. Okay. I'll just not share it online if it goes bad. Now, look, a lot of us, I think what you're literally thinking, this, this is so scary because I didn't plan this, so this could go haywire fast. But go, Trey. Okay. So, like, homosexuality. I know that's probably what you're all thinking, right? Now, here's the problem. We as a church, if we don't believe this salty message of our loudest desire must be killed so that our deepest desire may be fulfilled— The world is saying, look, all you Christians say is our desires must be killed. No, our loudest desires must be killed, 
but so that our deepest desires may be fulfilled. And here's where I think we've gone wrong as a church. We only think, when we think of loudest desires, we just point at homosexuality and say, you should kill that. There's something deeper for you. But guess what? Every single one of us have loud desires that we, that we feed into every single day. Guys, Christians, we should all be marked by self-denial. We should all be marked by saying, this is what I thought I wanted, and in fact, I still want it every day, but I fight against it because I know God gives me something of a deeper satisfaction in him. That message is salty, but it'll preserve your meat. You know what I'm saying? It is preservation for our soul. So us as a church, we need to start realizing, okay, I need to stop telling them to self-deny before I self-deny. So for me, again, none of this was planned. But for me, I have to deny my, my desire for pleasure. I just want everything to be fun. Like, I just want to have a blast, and I want to vlog it along the way, you know? Like, that's me. And I've had to learn, I need to sit in pain sometimes. I need to stop looking at the bright side. I have had, relate, I have had talks, I think with several of you, where you, you open up to me about a hurt, and I immediately try to find a positive spin, and that was not what you needed. I know that sounds like, I know what I just said is like, uh, you know, when you're getting interviewed and they're like, what are your weaknesses? I'm just, I just do too much. So I'm going to do a better, <laughs> you know, like I just uh, pursue pleasure. I'm just a happy person. I'm so sorry about that. Uh, I think another thing, honestly, for me, I'm finding more and more is food. For me, it's a loud desire. I realize Enneagram, shout out to Enneagram. I realize I'm a type seven where I run to food more than I like to admit. So for me, I'm having... And I've been preaching for you guys to fast, but I need to preach for me to fast because honestly, I crave it. Because like, I'm realizing I'm trying to run away from different pains of this world. And I think, let's just go eat some food. Okay, we have to all be marked by self-denial. The Greeks and Romans in ancient times, they even knew this. They knew that too much freedom would bring about destruction. They feared that soft living would eventually lead to deprivation. That is exactly what happened to Greece. It's exactly what happened to Rome. And to be honest, that is what's happening to the United States. And this message isn't to save the USA. Our message is to save the world. So it's much bigger than that. But it needs to start by us saying, you know what? Our loudest desires must be killed so that our deepest desires may be fulfilled. We do a great disservice if we just say the first line without the second. Okay, how do we do this? We lived out this reality by practicing the ways of Jesus. I know we already did a whole series on that. We're going to do it again in the summer, but it's this combination of feasting and releasing. It's getting rid of some of these things our desires crave, our flesh craves, but also feasting on these good things, still feasting on community, feasting on his word, feasting on worship. These things are good things. So again, it's releasing these loudest desires so that we can feast on the deepest desires. And, okay, I need to get going. But look, this is more than just about belief. It's about what you do. So we may say, yeah, I self-deny, but if every single one of us is just doing whatever we want, we are, we are not killing our loudest desires. James K.A. Smith, just mentioned him in the beginning. He says this. This has been rolling in my mind a lot. It is what we do rather than what we believe that ultimately shapes us. Think about that. You may say you believe one thing, but if you allow your desires, whatever you're allowing your desires to partake in, that is actually what is shaping your life. So are we as a people, this is a salty message, but it's what actually preserves our soul. We may say we believe in Jesus, but how are we with our body, 
with our physical, with what we do with our mind? How are we releasing our loudest desires so that we can feast on our deepest desires? Okay, so our message isn't to forego your desires, but it's actually to forego your deceitful desires. That's the salt. That will preserve us. This is the message I believe that our culture needs the most for revival to come. And I've already preached on it, on the practice in the way of Jesus. If you weren't here, go online. Now, thankfully, our job is not just to be salty. Amen? Our, salt is, our, our job is to be litty. Uh, verse, nope. Four, I thought maybe a second time you'd be ready to laugh. 14. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. By the way, this is still a good part of the sermon. I know I set myself up bad here. Now, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. Why does Jesus refer to us as light? Light does two things. Number one, it exposes darkness. Number two, it gives us a path, a path of hope. So it exposes the bad, but also we need to realize it's a very positive thing as well. It gives us a path full of hope. Notice how Jesus, though, refers to us as lamps. This is important. We are not the source of the light Jesus is. We see in John 8, we see in John 15, Jesus is constantly saying, I'm the light of the world, I am the I am the vine, you are the branches. He is the one giving us life. So when we say, I'm going to make a difference in this world, we have to first say, Jesus, what are the ways? I need to follow your ways. And by following you and doing what you've commanded, that is actually how I bring hope to this world. I also love the fact he's referencing us as a city, which again is so against the secular narrative. But I promise you, you cannot change the world on your own, but our community has a way better shot at it. He's saying a city is situated on a hill that cannot be hidden. In this time, it was almost impossible for a city to be on a hill. It, cost, it was way too expensive. It was hard for people to pull off. It was extremely difficult. But he's saying that is how impressive you are. You are like a city on a hill. And let us remember, it's like when you go camping where you can see all the stars. Everything is actually dark. When you have light, it wasn't common for you to be a city set on a hill. So what he's saying is when you do that, even those from super far away can see your lights because there's no other city that is situated on a hill. So that's what's really cool. For us, we say, okay, we make a difference. We expose the darkness, but even more importantly as well, we give path to hope when we live in community together and we practice the ways of Jesus together and we live on mission together. Do you guys see that? So what's the light that our dark world needs today? That's what I was thinking about. What is, because guys, again, this message can so be like, just go shine your light, right? But what is something we really need? Point number three, the last part of my poem. We can actually live with hope and meaning because we know our God is intervening. We live in a world that actually has no hope or meaning. Why? Because they're theology, there isn't a theology, their way of life is saying there is no creator and there is no God, and he's certainly not involved in my life. This sounds smart, but it, guess what? I think we're in a culture today of a lack of purpose, and I also think that's why our suicide rates are higher than ever. There is a direct correlation. We needed to connect the dots between our disenchantment and our depression. Because we've said, let's explain everything away, there is no God. We think we have figured out all of life, and guess what? Without God, life looks pretty terrible. 
if, is this really it? Was I really not created for a purpose? What's the point of this? You know what? I don't need this. And this is the situation that we're in. Now, we, we have the option. We have to say, those terrible people, they don't believe in God. Can you believe it? There's atheists everywhere. Or we can say, guys, we have the light. We have hope. I have a purpose. My life is much more than my own. That's the beauty that we have. We can start doing this. I, I was on Twitter. Again, I've given up. None of you guys are on Twitter, but it's okay. Now, Neil deGrasse Tyson, you guys ever heard of him? Y'all need to get in the culture better. Okay, but yes, okay. Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's this brilliant scientist. Everyone loves him. He's also very charismatic, so he does well. Like People love watching his YouTube videos and such, um, but he is not a believer in God, and he thinks he can explain everything away. And he, he did this tweet uh, just this week. He says, The universe is blind to our sorrows and indifferent to our pains. Have a nice day. How can you have a nice day if you don't believe that there's any higher being that actually, they don't care about you and your sorrows and your pains? And he's trying to connect. He's trying to think my disenchantment is why I'm so happy. But deep down, that is why everybody is so discontent. So my friend, Dan, Dan Darling, he's actually a pastor in Tennessee that supports our church. He gives us um, financial gifts every single month to help us in our ministry. And they're coming in October to do a mission trip. So really cool guy. But he, he tweeted, he retweeted it. And then he said, yes, but thankfully Jesus isn't. And then he quoted Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows acquainted with our grief. The universe may be blind because the universe, I don't know why we do that. But Jesus isn't blind to our sorrow. Jesus actually cares about your pains. That's what gives us hope. That's what gives us purpose. And I promise you, it's this message that our world desperately needs. The world needs to know that we were created for more. It's as if, um, I, I read in a book this week, I don't remember which book it was, but it's as if, um, I always call it Bank One Ballpark, but I know it's, what is it, Chase Field now? But it's the Bob, right? And so, I remember it was so cool because my knowledge serves me correctly. I was there opening day and it was the first ever baseball field that was retractable roof because we're in Arizona, let's be real. Um, it's like incredible half sometime and then like, can I say hell in church? You know what I'm saying? Like, so we have to close it to make us feel AC. But I remember how cool that was. But um, an author said, our society today is as if we have closed the retractable roof and we are focused on the game, and we are convinced that this is all there is to life. Meanwhile, if we just opened the roof, if we just got rid of our disenchantment, the beauty of the stars is above. And we are in a world, friends, where everybody's trying to play this game with their roof closed. And eventually that game gets boring, and eventually that game loses its beauty. And again, our job is not to just complain about it, but our job is to open up that roof for people. How do we do that? This is, Latin, this is what Jesus says in verse 16, and we're done. Verse 16, Jesus gives us how, how do we actually open up this and actually use our light. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your, underline this, good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I was trying to figure out this week how to close, and I'm like, obviously, Jesus, you want me to close with verse 16. How does this all work out? And I got so pumped when I actually looked at this word, good works, in the Greek. There are two different ways. I actually remember this from Greek class. Um, one of the only things. 
Hagathos means good in quality, but kalos means beautiful. And what is so cool about this passage, what Jesus is saying, when you're, when, let your light shine before others so that they may see your beautiful works. I thought, how timely is that to now? Because we have lost the beauty. Because we, we are disenchanted and we have tried to explain away God, but in doing so, we have lost the beauty of life. And when we do these good works, when we love and serve people, honestly, when we forego our loudest desires of selfishness, of greed, and we actually allow our deepest desires to come out of generosity and love, those things people realize because in our world, in this decaying world, people run to their own freedoms, but by running to their freedoms, they hurt everyone around them, and they also eventually hurt themselves. But we have something deeper, because we deny that flesh. We deny those loudest desires because we have seen the beauty of deepest desires found in glorifying God. We have that opportunity, and it's beautiful. We walk in a world that has lost any kind of definition of purpose and meaning because we have disenchanted, we, we have lost the stars. And when we do good works, it's actually the only way we can enchant the disenchanted. So I think here Jesus is saying, live out this Christian life, not only tell them the truth, but lovingly love them in truth. And this is what gives them hope. I, I have to end with this. John 3.16. Um, you're like, I've heard that before. I get it. But l- read, read this with me. It says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. You ever notice most people just stop there? Like, yeah! First, let's keep going, okay? Verse 17 says, for, the, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Can we just let that sink in? As salt and light, we're not called to condemn it. I lost my point. Okay, here it is. We're not called to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. He's already decaying. He's already dark. Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Verse 19 just hit me this week. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world... And people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. What does that mean for us? This means people, you have to, we have to see this. I think why Jesus said we need to do good works, we need to be salt and light and do these things because, listen, debating about God is important, but it will never actually save their soul. Why? Because they love the darkness. They say they're rational but they just don't want the truth because if they believe the truth, that means they can't fulfill their loudest desires. You know what I'm saying? So what we have the opportunity to do with apologetics, I'm not throwing that out the window at all, but in our love, in our kindness, we're able to soften their heart and God is able to use that opportunity for them to see, wow, I need to stop denying this light because not only... Do I believe it's a real thing? But now, because I've seen the church live it out, it is a beautiful thing. And that is the hope that we have. I hope I'm hitting that point. May we be a people who are salt and light. We're not ashamed. We don't think we need to be sugar. 
But we also know we need to be light and loving. And through this combination of grace, but also discipline, uh, you know, of, of loving kindness, but also there's a certain way to live, this beautiful combination powered by the Holy Spirit can enable us to love and serve the world. And I promise you, your neighbor needs your love. Your friend needs your love. They need your patience and kindness because, I'll end with this, Jesus literally says, you are the only hope. There is no other solution on this planet but us because we have received the light. Will we shine it?